Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So we apologize right up front. We have some technical issues today. You may notice a uh, 60 hertz hum in the background. It's actually uh, a, a drill uh, as they're modifying, rehabbing Beach Hall. So it's good shipboard 03 level yeah, the, uh, ambience. The, the roof of Beach Hall. Yeah. It, it sounds like we're on the 03 level of an aircraft carrier right, right. now with needle guns going. Exactly. Yeah, also, our phone system is down as it was yesterday. So when you listen right. to this week's, when you listen to episode 37, uh, the, the petty officer's voice is sort of thin and, and we apologize. And so we think we got X plus one better fidelity now. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not the sound as much as the content of the character uh, and the words, right? Okay, so thank you, audience, for bearing with us. We promise in future works we'll return to the quality you are used to with the Proceedings Podcast. So in any case, uh, welcome. And Bill, we got a very special guest today. We do. And, and full disclosure, I have to say that uh, our guest today is a friend of mine, uh, but he is... Uh, uh, aside from being a friend of mine, he is in a very key leadership position in the Navy right now. Uh, he's also a proceedings author, uh, and uh, it, you know his name has been in the in the news a lot uh, since the uh, former Mikpon uh, Giordano uh, resigned and is in the process of retiring right now. And so the temporary Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy is Fleet Master Chief Russ Smith, who is the Fleet Master Chief for Manpower, Personnel, Training, and Education. Uh, so the N1 Master Chief, if you will. Uh, so Russ Smith joins us on the line today from Norfolk. Um, and Russ, Master Chief Fleet, great to have you on the, on the podcast. Sure, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to participate. So I'll tell our listeners a little bit about how we know each other. So back in 1994, uh, as a Navy intelligence officer, I was assigned to SEAL Team 4 at Little Creek in, uh, in Virginia, the Norfolk area. Uh, I was one of the first intelligence officers to be assigned to a SEAL team. And when I showed up, there were some impressive young people in my division. Uh, none more impressive than, at that time, IS-2 intelligence specialist second class, uh, Russ Smith. And uh, Russ worked with me at SEAL Team 4. We helped uh, do a lot of things that developed the type of intelligence that the SEALs needed to do their missions uh, and help them dis, you know, think about ways for them to change their command and control structure going forward. Uh, and Russ was one of those guys who, um, about a year after working for me, the Navy rolled out its Seaman to Admiral program. And I said, Russ Smith is a great candidate for the Seaman to Admiral program. I, I talked to you about putting you in for that program. And you said, sir, thanks very much. That, that honors me and I, I appreciate it but I want to be a Master Chief someday. And so, uh, very prophetic, 24 years later, here you are, the temporary MCPON right now. You are a Fleet Master Chief, and you are in the hunt uh, to be the next uh, Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. So congrats on the incredible career you've had. If you would tell our listeners a little bit about sort of where you've been, what you've done, and, and how you got to the position you're in today. Uh, thanks, sir. So <clears throat> I've had a... Uh... I've had the unique experience to start out as a packed, packed airman uh, on board a flight deck of a carrier and then change rates several times. Uh, the last time changing rates to command master to specialize in people policy and, and uh, command execution rather than my technical specialties in IS. And I think that 
spending time on the flight deck, spending time as a WT, as a weapons technician, working uh, on nuclear weapons, uh, and then later in naval intelligence, uh, and the varied places that naval intelligence can take you, um, really gave me a unique perspective on the Navy that I have thoroughly enjoyed, and frankly, in my job at uh, Manpower Personnel Training and Education has greatly aided me uh, as we make changes to the sailor experience that I think are going to fundamentally change the way sailors interact with our systems and do things, the choices they have, you know, throughout their careers, and what a great way to go out. Yeah, so uh, reading your, your bio here, assignments, you, you mentioned that you were a weapons technician. I remember you told a lot of stories when we first got to know each other about <laughs> nuclear weapons and checklists and fail-safes and all that kind of stuff. It was fascinating. Uh, and you went from, so you were on the USS Enterprise, SEAL Team 4, USS Carl Vinson as an IS, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you were Command Master Chief on the USS Momsen. Uh, and then I know you were here at the Naval Academy as the Command Master Chief for the Naval Academy, working with midshipmen. And we have, um, for the first summer ever, we've got at the Naval Institute, we have midshipmen summer interns. Two of them are in the, in the room with us right now in Studio C here at Beach Hall. Uh, and, and so it's, it's been great having midshipmen on board with us, uh, learning about our content, uh, helping us think about uh, social media strategies and that sort of thing. Uh, give, us, give a story, if you will, about your time uh, working here at the Naval Academy and what you thought. Well, to be honest, I never thought, because, you know, timing is everything. And when a job comes open once every 36 months, you would never suspect that it would come open when, in my window. And uh, when Nick Pond West, uh, in the aftermath of me not getting something I, something I wanted, said, hey, you know, the, uh, the Naval Academy just opened up and you'd really, you'd probably enjoy that. It was, it was just a sign and I was so excited to apply. And frankly, when Admiral Carter arrived after my first year on board, my experience at the Naval Academy just absolutely took off. And I, I have never had a more rewarding experience, nor do I think I ever will, than having a hand in shaping the next 30 to 40 years of leadership and not just the Navy and the Marine Corps, but the nation because of where all the graduates go and the impact that they have, uh, not just uh, as sailors and Marines, but as citizens in the United States. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic way to put that. That is. That's a, that's, yeah. a, that's a good point. And then you went from the job here at the Naval Academy uh, about a year and a half ago to the Fleet Master Chief for Manpower Personnel Training and Education. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what, what that job entails. Because w- when you told me you were going to that job, it was one that I had not heard of. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are a little bit unaware of that that role in, and I know from our conversations since then that you have a, a significant hand in helping to shape personnel policies and retention, recruitment, all those kinds of things. So what are the kinds of things that are happening uh, in, in that position right now? Sure. So uh, manpower, personnel, and tra- training education is really not only undergoing its own transformation to become a more responsive and flexible organization focused on customer service and meeting the needs of sailors, but doing so in a way that is smarter, better, faster, and will more more easily enable sailors to focus on tactical competence and warfighting readiness because they won't be spending all their time at a PSD. They won't be spending all their time taking care of their pay and personnel issues and other such things. We can remove those impediments and get them out of the sailor's way so they can focus on their job as a warfighter. 
and it's it's a, a many and varied uh, disparate group of uh, of efforts, but all allied to do that same thing. So we, we just finished our quarterly board of directors meeting here in, at the Naval Institute to this this afternoon, just before I came uh, in here, uh, and and at the end of one of of every one of our board of directors meetings there's sort of a free play conversation discussion among you know we have people like Admiral Stavridis on our board uh, we have former Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard Vince Patton wasn't here today but he's part of our board of directors as well uh, and we the conversation is always about you know what are the major topics and we talked about China we talked about great power competition, about the national security strategy. But one of the things that came up from several of our board of directors, uh, board of directors today was retention, uh, recruitment and retention, and about the fact that you know the economy is so good right now, and uh, the Navy is thinking of building up to 355 ships. So it's hard to just meet our numbers as it you know with 280 ships. How do we get to 355, and how do we get to the number of people required uh, to, to man 355 ships? So your job is square in the middle of that. So what kinds of things are happening right now to improve recruiting and also improve, in, improve intention, uh, retention you know, beyond the first-term enlistments? Sure. So retention right now is actually at a historic high. It's around 61%. Uh, typically, that number is closer to 50 <clears throat> the uh, chief of naval personnel says all the time that we're trying to make the pyramid a little smaller at the base and a little bit taller so that saber, sailors can serve for a longer career. And a lot of the things that we've been doing have been geared to, I mean, when, when we say we're going to grow to 355 uh, and to grow the commensurate amount of personnel, you can't do that just by pushing people through boot camp. You have to pull on a lot of different levers to make that happen. So to, to meet those uh, apprentice and journeyman positions, uh, we, we modified higher tenure for E4, E5, and E6 and moved it to the right. And we did that so that we can meet end strength goals as we continue to grow. And that's in combination with recruiting a greater amount of sailors, uh, increasing to over 40,000 sailors next year going through boot camp, uh, and it will continue to grow from there. So. Uh, we're not just pushing sailors through boot camp, though that's a part of the strategy. We're also modifying high-year tenure. Uh, to be frank, the, the policy to allow us to keep uh, sailors who have failed multiple PFAs and would otherwise be face separation, we kept them because we have end strength goals to meet. And we got a lot of pushback from the chief's quarters because they were concerned that we were dropping standards, quite the opposite. Uh, with programs such as incentivizing uh, good performance on the PRT, 11% of the Navy actually went into the excellent or outstanding categories from below that. Uh, but what we're also saying, we're not changing the standards. You can't re-enlist. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't uh, go to shore duty. You're going to stay where you're at, and you're going to continue to serve. But we're just not going to let you out of your commitment early. And if you want to get well here's an easy opportunity to do that and then stay with the Navy. So we've, we've made a lot of adjustments, some very popular, some less so, uh, but it's all about meeting end strength goals and making sure that we have the right sailors with the training experience where we need them as we continue to grow. So talk a little bit about that, um, the incentive that, that the new PRT program has uh, that 
gets, you, you mentioned 11% more are now in the outstanding and excellent category. How did that happen? What, what, is, what are the incentives that, that drive people to, instead oh, of I'm being... I'm sorry, so the, the main no, incentive is that on the next PRT that follows the one you scored an excellent outstand, or outstanding on, uh, you're allowed to skip the PRT portion of the next PFA. So all you have to do is the BCA, the weigh-in, and you're good. So if you score outstanding or excellent, you only have to do the PRT once a year instead of twice a year. Exactly. And it reduces a little bit of administrative overhead and, and admin burden. And again, gives sailors back some time to focus on tackle competency and warfighting readiness. So, Master Chief, have you had a chance to travel around the fleet? I know you've probably been drinking from the fire hose since you took over. Um, have you been been traveling much? Uh, I travel about 20 to 22 days a month, sir. I uh, I was just out in San Diego a couple of weeks, two weeks ago, and I'm down here in Norfolk today. Uh, I'll be heading out next to Newport with CMP, and then as soon as I get back from that trip one day later, I'm flying out to Great Lakes, Lemoore, in San Diego with the Vice Chief. Uh, and then later in the month, I have some travel with the CNO to the West Coast as well. So what what are you hearing from the sailors that's surprising you? I'm sorry, I could, I, what am I hearing from the yeah, sailors? What, what are you hearing from sailors that surprises you? Uh, I, I try to be funny here, but I know in a podcast it may not play well. Um, sailors can find a way to take issue at times with even some of the best ideas that we have. Uh, that thing I just told you about where you can take the PRT once a year rather than twice a year. Uh, I've had sailors actually come down after we're done with an all-hands call and want to talk to me for about 15 or 20 minutes about why that's a bad idea. Um, sometimes that surprises me, but uh, what does not surprise me are the questions sailors ask um, in the wake of the recent Facebook Live event that CNO and CNP did uh, where sailors are asking for beards. <laughs> and I don't even think... Uh, Captain Hamlet, sir, I don't think even you were around when they had beards. So Well Commander um, Carroll Commander Carroll was around when they had again. beards. Yeah. Um, Ward, Ward Carroll is a little bit older than I am. And uh, yeah, he was around when when there were beards in the Zumwalt days. No, not that old. Not but uh, <laughs> my first cruise on Indy with CAG six, Master Chief, well, the, our, all of our yeomen had beards and it was, you know, legal. Nice. Yeah. We just we, we did a lot of work with the safety center thinking that we would be the heroes of the navy and get to yes. And the safety center came back with some really chilling data, and we just can't safely get there, at least not with the equipment and the environment that we're expected to operate these days. That doesn't mean that maybe someday down the line we may be able to accommodate, but it's not going to be anytime soon. But, but that's, a, that's a reasonable answer, right? I mean, it, it wasn't a knee-jerk, somebody at the top said, I hate beards. It was go to the safety center. What are the, what are the reasons uh, that a beard makes sense or doesn't make sense, you know, given shipboard fires, given the firefighting equipment that you have to wear, given all the different things that might impact uh, mission and impact damage control, impact, uh, you know, resilience in combat, right? And you go, yeah, that, that probably doesn't make sense to have beards right now. Uh, so, I, To your point, sir, I think that being a part of MPT&E, uh, between what I just knew of Admiral Moran when he was in the job and what I've seen out of Admiral Burke, you are not going to find more selfless, thoughtful, patient, detailed sailor advocates than those two admirals. 
they have put in so much time and so much work to find ways to accommodate. And it's not that they're trying to be popular. We're trying to make good, common-sense, pragmatic decisions. And the way that those two leaders have gone about their jobs uh, is nothing short of eye-watering. And if people got to see what I saw every day, which I feel is part of my mission to share that every way I can, uh, they wouldn't have misgivings that someone makes a knee-jerk reaction and uh, just makes a decision because they don't like something. Even the stuff we think is not viable, we take a really hard look at. We're using this, uh, what we call the business design process, the BDO process, to use design thinking to look at things that most people in traditional military circles never would have to see if there's a way to make it make sense. And the, the work that goes in is just phenomenal. So, Russ, you just mentioned... Uh, a couple times, Admiral Moran, and uh, we published last week in Proceedings, Proceedings Today, a piece by Admiral Moran, the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, uh, where he essentially kind of gave an update on what the Navy's done since the Fitzgerald and McCain collisions of 2017. The thing that came out in the Strategic Readiness Review and the Comprehensive Review, the, the checklist of high-priority items, and he essentially said... Uh, we, our team is coming out soon to the waterfront, to the fleet concentration areas. And in his article, it said, we want blunt, honest feedback from the fleet. Uh, so you just mentioned your travel schedule and it overlaps with, uh, with Admiral Moran's travel schedule. So you're part of that team. I think it's called the ROC. Uh, so tell us a little bit because, uh, you know, certainly 2017 hard year for the Navy, uh, a lot of action items coming out of the Fitzgerald and McCain and those those two strategic reviews. Uh, so tell us your part in that and what are the major things that are that are happening right now to ensure that uh, we we don't have a repeat of 2017. So as as the MPTD uh, fleet master, I have not been in the ROC uh, fleet fleet honing out in the Pacific Fleet. And Fleet Kingsbury down here in uh, down here at Fleet Forces, soon to be Fleet Ora tomorrow, uh, have been the principal members. Um, I support and help out a lot with what uh, N1 has been asked for and providing as far as information and, and feedback. But uh, as the as the interim MCPON, uh, I haven't been added to any of the stuff that as as the MCPON I, I might be added to. So whoever. Uh, the CNO selects as MCPON 15, I'm sure will have a more healthy involvement. What I can tell you to the second question is that what I see so far in my leadership is no one's letting go of anything. You know how I think typically when things happen, we do a, a good thorough investigation because the Navy is a very good introspective service. They take a good hard look at themselves when things come up and they, uh, they really want to figure out why something went wrong. But sometimes after the spotlight fades and, and we get back to a work groove, we can sometimes fall into old habits. And what I see out of leadership right now is a consistent unwillingness to allow us to slide back into a bad groove and that they're going to keep the spotlight on and we're going to continue to maintain pressure to ensure that what we're doing is getting after those things that were identified by the CR and the SRR to ensure that we don't have those same kinds of, kinds of issues again. 
Well, you mentioned Fleet Kingsbury, and so anytime somebody mentions Fleet Kingsbury on the podcast, we have to do the political, the, the paid announcement that uh, he's joining the Naval Institute team next fall, which we're super oh, excited about that. No doubt, yeah. no and, doubt. And he's a member right now of our editorial board and has been, and he's written for proceedings and won essay contests. So yeah, Fleet, Fleet Kingsbury is in our in our mind uh, also. You know, one of one of the very top people in the Navy right now. No, we're we're psyched, and he's going to bring a point of view that uh, is is iconoclastic. Fantastic uh, for our for staff. Our, our staff, exactly. Um, hey, Fleet. One of the things I wanted to bring up because uh, I, I've told people, some people are still, you know, our audience for the podcast is growing, and more and more people, and then they go, "Oh, I didn't know about the podcast. What? Tell me about the podcast." And you know, the common denominator for the podcast is that everyone that's been on the a guest has written for proceedings. And so a year ago, in May, in May of 2017, uh, you wrote a piece that we published as uh, Proceedings Today, and it was called Ethics Matter for Master Chiefs. Uh, and you've been a, a, a fleet master chief. You've been a command master chief at several different levels. Tell us a little bit about uh, this article that you wrote for Proceedings and what, you know, what gave you the idea to write it. What was the germ that, uh, you know, so it was under, under your, the spur under your saddle that said, hey, I, I need to write about this because some things that are, that are sir, concerning. A great question, sir. So the, uh, obviously, ethics and character development are staples at the Naval Academy. And uh, there was a character capstone course that firsties go through that uh, I think started in 2002. That is an absolutely phenomenal thing. And for anybody that's listening, I don't want to spoil the ending in case you get to participate someday. But the impact that that had when I was still at OpNav and had not yet gone to the academy was the reason that I wanted to go to the academy. And so I was fascinated by uh, Colonel Art Athens and the work he was doing. And, and he helped out the chief us there a lot. Um, and what I realized when I left uh, knew before I got there, but certainly felt it more when I left, is that we don't do ethics training the way we probably should across our force. And that's now why that's now more a part of our enlisted leader development framework that we have. Um, but as an unfortunate part of my responsibilities, uh, anybody that's got a retirement on the line, they're 18 years or, or longer in service and facing losing a retirement and facing ADCEP or some other process similar, uh, those packages have to either go to CNP or on from CNP to SECNAV, and I get the opportunity to provide advice and counsel to, to CNP on those. And when you look at some of these packages, uh, the recommendations that would be made by the chain of command, uh, the way when you when you spoke with down echelon leadership about the decisions they made and their recommendations, it was just disheartening when you would hear somebody say, well, he didn't break the law. And I was like, it doesn't matter. It, if you are, as I said in one paragraph that I think covered you know, the essence of the, of the article, if you are treading too close to the line, you're already sacrificing the credibility you need. And you know, most of these packages, I wouldn't say most, many of the packages that I was dealing with were, were command mass chiefs who, you know, in our command structure, it's really weird because you work for the CO and no one works for you. Every relationship you have you have to influence or finesse. And if you have no credibility, you can't finesse or influence anyone. So it matters. It doesn't mean that ethics don't matter to sailors in general. It means that to a mass chief, ethics are really our lifeblood by which we can function at all. 
Yeah, I, in in this piece, which I think uh, you just you you brought out some very subtle points about leadership and about positional authority versus uh, ethical authority and and place in the chain of command. You know, you, you, a couple of points I'll just read for our readers, uh, our listeners. Um, Although finesse should be a part of any successful leader's repertoire, officers rely on different facets of leadership as well. And then you go on to say master chiefs, especially those managing large departments, must rely on example, diplomacy, and tact. And you're, you know, the point about the, the type of example that you set in your, your personal behavior, that impacts your ability to finesse and to and to influence people's decisions, right? You can't order, as you just said, as a command master chief, you work for the CO, you're providing senior listed advice and, and uh, leadership, but much of that leadership is by example. Um, and so that, that example that you set is really important because if you haven't set a good example, then people aren't going to follow you because they realize that you're, uh, that, that there's, you know, you're, you're not being credible, right? And, uh, and it's just a, it's a it's a very fine point. I think that idea that that leadership sometimes is very uh, dependent on the ability to finesse outcomes and to influence people. And what you do and say, and if you, if there's a big do say disconnect, your ability to influence that outcome is going to be greatly diminished. Yes, sir. Yeah. So that was in the May 2017 issue of Proceedings. We'll remind the listeners that. As a member benefit, you can reference or you can access every issue of proceedings ever. So look that one up uh, if you want to read the, it, it in its entirety. It's a, it's a great piece. Yep. Uh, May, May 2017, it's called Ethics Matter for Master Chiefs by Fleet Master Chief Russell Smith, U.S. Navy. I'm sorry uh, I haven't written more, sir, but uh, no, 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 I, it's come down to either I have one job or the other. I'm going to write more. <laughs> yeah, do, do your main job Do well. your main job. Do it well. Uh, but the other thing you can do that, that Paul Kingsbury, Fleet Kingsbury, has done quite a bit is influencing other people, back to that word influence, right? Influencing other people to write for proceedings. So as you're out there talking to sailors uh, and talking to the, the chief's mess, uh, as people offer great ideas or have questions and great ideas to go with them, uh, telling them to write for proceedings uh, is, I think, part of your job. Or part of your part of your job as an ambassador for the Naval Institute and as a, a, an ambassador for proceedings, because we we not just we don't just publish uh, as you know uh, we, we don't just publish articles by officers, we publish a lot of articles by enlisted people, uh, and that sure. number that percentage has grown. We've brought back the enlisted essay contest we had on the podcast yesterday, a Coast Guard petty officer who is the winner of this year's enlisted essay contest. So we want to know we want represented in proceedings. The ideas of everybody from petty officers all the way to, you know, four stars and congressmen, which we've also had in the past year in proceedings. So uh, it's open to all. It's, it's not the battle of rank. It's the battle of ideas. So, um, yeah. So, Russ, what are the next, uh, you know, you, you mentioned your travel schedule. Uh, what, are the, what are the next steps? How, how soon do we think there, there will be a permanent Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy? Uh, like I said, sir, the you know my my role is really just to give him the decision space to, to make a, a very deliberate, thoughtful decision. I don't uh, I don't know what that looks like uh, up beyond the fact that he's taking his time to make sure that he measures three times and cuts once. He being the CNO. Yes, yes, 
sir. Sorry about that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's a laudable thing to do, right? Uh, especially given the current situation, you want to make sure you get the right person. We at the Naval Institute are pulling for you. Uh, but uh, we know that you're he one of... He has plenty of, plenty yeah, of talent he's to got choose from. A lot, a lot of people to choose from, no doubt, no doubt. Um, well, Russ, hey, we want to thank you for joining us uh, and uh, for writing for Proceedings, for all that you're doing for the fleet uh, and for being a member of the Naval Institute and, um, uh, you know, for, for all the things that you and the folks who work with you are doing to move forward from the the hard year that the Navy had in 2017 to put in place those um, policies and procedures that are going to bring in the talent for the future of the Navy, retain the, f- the talent for the future of the Navy. And uh, we, we just wish you, uh, you know, fair winds following seas and, and continued great luck as you, as you push forward. Thanks, sir. It's been my, uh, my rare and unique opportunity and, and great privilege to do this job. And frankly, every job I've had since I, uh, I became a CMC. I thought it was going to be the one I would retire out of, and I've always wanted to go out in sort of a blaze of glory. And with everything that I've got to do, and that Admiral Burke has allowed me to do uh, in MPTE, is just I couldn't be more grateful for. All I want to do is leave the Navy a little bit better than I found it, and uh, and just be a part of that great effort. Frankly, the vision that both Admiral Moran and now Admiral Burke have for what that future looks like. We're, we're lucky that we've had great leaders like them at the top. And they're lucky they've had great enlisted counsels from folks like you. So thanks a lot, uh, Fleet. And, uh, you know, we'll be, uh, we'll be watching closely. And, uh, and as Bill said, uh, best of luck in the, uh, the months to come. So our guest, today, our guest today was Fleet Master Chief Russ Smith. He is the Fleet Master Chief for Manpower, Personnel, Training, and Education and the temporary Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy right now. He wrote in Proceedings a piece called Ethics Matter for Master Chiefs in May of 2017. Uh, We wish him all the best, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you, Russ. Uh, Take care, and uh, we'll be in touch. Great. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Remember, fans, uh, that victory begins at the Naval Institute. We will be in touch uh, again next week. Thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.